This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 228, with guest Janelle Hanchett. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no-BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. I hope you're having a fantastic day. And as always, I'm so excited about today's guest. I devoured her book. I did. I did. I devoured it. I read it while I was in New York on my book tour and couldn't put it down. It was so good. I will get to that in a minute. I thought I might give you an update if anybody cares. (laughs) No, I do have a lesson around all of this update slash story. So some of you might've heard me mention that I am training for a sprint triathlon. For those of you that don't know what that distance looks like, it is a half a mile swim in a lake. And then we get on a bike And we bike, I think this one is 12 miles. It might be 14 and a half. There's two different routes you can go on a mountain trail or on the road. And one is 14 and a half and one is 12. And I can't remember which is which. And then after that, you run for 3.1 miles. Don't forget the 0.1. It counts. So I have done three of them in the past. I think I did my first one around 2010. And then I did a couple after that, and I but I haven't done one since. I think my last one was 2012 or 2013, so it's been a minute. And as I was talking about in the episodes that I did with my friend Kate Anthony a few episodes back, I haven't worked out in like two years. <laughs> I did some workouts here and there, and there was there was a reason, which I won't get into. You have to go back and listen to those episodes I did with, with Kate on body image and, and all of that stuff. But I am back, and I think we're in our fifth or sixth week of a 12-week training. And when I say we, I signed up at my gym. We're members of the YMCA. It's my, my son is on the swim team there, so, so we're members. And I saw, I happened to walk by this flyer hanging on the wall and I read it and it was like, try at the Y. (laughs) So clever. And it was basically the, one of the spinning instructors is an Ironman triathlete and he was running this training group and, you know, the triathlon, you sign up for the triathlon on June 9th, I think it is. And we all train together. He has it all structured. And I was like, okay, I'll do this. And so I paid the money and I signed up and I was like, oh my God, this guy is not fucking around. (laughs) This was not what I was expecting. And my friend, um, Ella over on the, um, honor with Ella podcast, she was like, uh, you signed up for a training program with an Ironman triathlete. What were you expecting him to just like say, Oh, just go and swim a few laps and then, you know, run a little bit on the treadmill. No, 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 no. It's very structured. And anyway, on Saturday mornings, very early in the morning, we all as a group. And when I say it's a group, it's like four or five of us. We ride together and, I don't have a road bike because <laughs> I don't really like cycling. Why would I have a road bike? But my friend Ella said, you can borrow my mountain bike. And I was like, okay. So you guys, there's a big difference, I guess, between road bikes and mountain bikes. Like mountain bikes are for mountain biking, like on the trails, in the dirt, 
all of that fun stuff. So when you're riding on the road, it's hard because of the way the tires are and it's it it's more challenging. So here I am on this freaking mountain bike with all of these dudes who have their like fancy ass road bikes and I show up and also it's like 6:30 in the morning. We've gone twice now. And actually the first week we went it was, I didn't have the bike yet for my friend. And so I borrowed Mike as our coach. His wife has a hybrid. And so that wasn't that hard to ride. But then two weeks later, I rode with Elizabeth's bike, Ella, her name is Ella. And oh my God. And it was the day before I started my period. So y'all know, y'all know what that feels like. My energy is like in the shitter. It was 6.30 in the morning. I had had people over the night before, and so I didn't get as much sleep as I usually do. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I made it, though. It was hard. There was some complaining that was happening. I made it. I made the whole – I did the whole thing. They had to, like, double back and come and get me a few few times. (laughs) But I have to say, the guys, they're awesome. And um, all right. So here's the moral of my story. The moral of my story is not like, yay, look at how hard it was for me and I did it. The reason back in 2010 that I signed up for that sprint triathlon was because of my phobia, (laughs) my drain phobia. A lot of you guys, I was talking about it on my Instagram stories. I am afraid of drains. I also don't like open water. It, it, I'm, I don't know what's underneath there. It's the uncertainty of it. I, I don't know what kind of creature from the bottom is going to come up and try to nibble on my toes. I also don't know. I just, I, the hair stands up on the back of my neck just talking about it. So I did it because I was scared. I did it because I'm like, okay, I can go out there in the water with all those people and it's safe. It's like, it's like this, you know, it's all organized and everything. That's how I'm going to overcome my fear. And also, hello, like swimming and then biking and then running. That's, that's kind of badass. Like who, who does that? And that's what I wanted to do. So that's the reason I wrote a blog post about it a million years ago. And that's why I did it. That's really why I signed up. And then I actually liked it. So the whole point of my story is about stepping out of your comfort zone. What is something that you've thought about doing or what is something that you're afraid of that an action you can take that would push you through that fear, that would push you through that comfort zone? Because 10 years ago, if somebody would have been like, yeah, you're, you know, you're going to be on your fourth triathlon, I would have been like, really? I don't want to swim in a lake. <laughs> I don't even like looking over the dock. If you want me to go swim in the lake? No. I mean, I'm not in a submarine? No. So yeah, that, that thing that you're afraid to do and that you would feel so amazing if you just went and did it. Like, what is something that's out of your comfort zone that you can do this week? Is it a phone call that you could make? Is it some research that you can do to start a project? Is it a conversation or an email that you can send to somebody at work to inquire about getting a promotion or a raise or what is it? What is the thing that you can do? We get so stuck in our complacency of life and just like, oh yeah, this is how it is, blah, blah, blah. What is something that you can do? Okay. I wouldn't be a good life coach if I didn't every once in a while, at least push you out of your comfort zone and challenge you to do something big. All right. All right. Also, on Thursdays, I'm back doing my live Instagram and live Facebook videos talking about 
something related to personal development. I don't know what I'm going to be talking about this week, but I will figure it out. I was there last week. And if you missed that video, you can go and see, you can see them all actually on Facebook at the Your Kick-Ass Life Facebook page or on YouTube. Find me over there, Your Kick-Ass Life on YouTube and watch the, they're usually around 10 minutes long. And I am there, Instagram and Facebook, noon Eastern time. So that'll be nine o'clock Pacific time. And the other thing I wanted to mention is I'm really excited about next week's podcast episode. I'm finally, finally 200 and something episodes in four years of podcasting, and I've never done a favorite things episode. I hope you like it. But I'm really excited. I have a list of my favorite things that I use all the time, every day, and with links on there so you can go and check them out if you are interested. Really excited to share that with you. And I think that's about it for this uh, extra long intro. And before we jump into the conversation with Janelle, let me tell you a little bit about her. Janelle Hanchette created the website Renegade Mothering in 2011 because she needed to know if the rest of the mothering world was crazy or she was. Writing after her kids went to bed and while she was supposed to be working, Janelle attracted an audience of millions of readers. She holds a BA in English from University of California at Davis and an MA in English Literature from Sacramento State. She lives in Northern California with her four children and husband, Mac, who thinks getting dressed up means shaving his forearm tattoo. So without further ado, here is Janelle. Janelle, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you. I am, I think we're both a little bit under the weather. You mentioned you had allergies and I am, I am like all gross and phlegmy. So forgive me if I sound like a different person and I am just really excited to have you. So you and I have, we met on the internet as you know, many people do. And I had been reading your blog. I think we kind of like friended each other on Facebook because we run in the same like recovery circle. And then um, I knew you were writing a book and I was lucky enough to get a, um, what are they called? Can't even think. Advanced reader copies. We call them ARCs. We call them ARCs in the biz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read the whole thing, which I have to admit, please, other authors don't kill me. I don't always read the entire book when people send me one. Right. But I was so happy to read it and I read the whole thing. And you did, I got to say, you did a great job, lady. Really, really great. Congratulations. Thank you you so much. Really appreciate it. I want to jump in. I have, I have several questions and I have a lot of listeners who are thinking about getting sober or who are in recovery. And so I kind of want to ask you about that. And then also (laughs) the process of, of writing this book. And I also have a lot of people that might not be in recovery and sobriety, but who are writers and are thinking about starting a blog or who have a blog or want to write a book and, and all of that. So let's start from kind of the beginning and when, so you started Renegade Mothering in 2011, correct? Yes. How did that come about? Did you just, cause you were always kind of a writer. So tell us how that happened and why. Absolutely. So I got sober in 2009. <laughs> it took me a second to remember. <laughs> uh, and after a two year separation from my children. So, um, and then my husband and I were sort of, and, and my husband, my children and my husband, uh, I was, we were separated for two years while I tried to get my act together. Um, and then, so for a year, we, my husband and I sort of dated, you know, air quotes, and uh, I saw my kids more regularly. But in 2010, we were all reunited. And I um, had my third baby in August of 2010. 
we bought a little house together. And so I found myself, and this is related to the blog, I promise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, so I found myself 30 years old, you know, two children and a baby, two young children and a baby, thrown, sort of woken up in motherhood. I mean, I had been a mother for seven years or whatever, but I was not awake. I was, I was drinking a lot and, um, addicted to drugs. And so I kind of was thrown into this domestic, domestic life and I was working and going to grad school and infinitely happy to be there. I'm not trying to plug the book. That's why I named it that though, mm-hmm. because I see that sentence a lot. Um, I was incredibly grateful and I was incredibly delighted and it wasn't lost on me how lucky I was to be with my family as you know, women like me often end up not with their families or in the gutter somewhere. And, um, and yet I, I felt this incredible sort of sense of, um, kind of erasure and, um, the monotony of motherhood was mm-hmm. born heck out of me. And I felt like I, I just couldn't find. And so I started looking around for other mothers who felt like I did, right? Like I started reading the internet, I'd read blogs, I'd read books, magazines. And I just, it seemed like there were these categories of mothers, right? Like there were the ones that had their shit together, like perfectly. And, yes. and I certainly couldn't relate to them. And then there were the ones who were like, I don't care. I just drink my martinis and hang out with my friends. And I was like, that cannot be real. Like, you really, you don't care. I mean, you know, that didn't feel real. And, and I'd read these books about parenting and then I'd try to implement them and then I'd forget about it or just fail, you know, flatly fail. And so it was a growing sense of sort of isolation and frustration. And I found myself starting to respond to things I would read in my head. Like I would start I would read some article and then I would start crafting this response in my brain. <laughs> Here's what I want to say to you. <laughs> you know, or like the way I would have written it or, yeah. you know, why aren't they saying this one thing? And so it started as this itch and this feeling of like, why isn't anybody writing my experience of motherhood? Because I thought to myself, you know, if, if I can be this grateful to have these children, and have this family and still want to launch myself into oncoming traffic on occasion. Mm-hmm. Like I can't possibly be alone. Like this can't, I, I mean, maybe I'm just crazy, but I wanted to know if I was crazy or the rest of the world was like, I really wanted to know if the mothering world, right. I just really wanted to know if there were other mothers who felt like me. So one day I sat down and I started writing this blog when I was supposed to be working and I called it renegade mothering because I, uh, had been reading a lot of mothering magazine. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so it was sort of a dual thing of me playing on mothering magazine and, um, this idea of renegade, not that I'm some sort of badass, but just that I didn't want to set any expectation of, um, consistency or even helpfulness. Mm -hmm. I made it of join me in the fight against helpful parenting advice. Um, and I just wanted, I decided I was just going to write the truth of my experience exactly as it was with, you know, if I was sentimental one day and raging the next day, I was just going to let it be. And I was going to write exactly how I felt and my experience to see if there were other people who felt like I did. And so it was really born out of a sense of curiosity and a desire for connection. Uh And it worked. Yeah, it did work. It would blow, blow me away. I mean, I had about 40 readers for two years and mm-hmm. 20 of my cousins. But um, but then I wrote a post and I think it was late 2011 or 
yeah, about two years later, uh, maybe 2012 then, um, or 13, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Uh, where it got, it got kind of big and I went from like 600 Facebook fans to like 4,000 or something. There was a part, I think it was in, it was one of those moments where I was reading and it was so good. And I'm like, I I need to ask her about this. I wish I had a highlighter or a pen or something. I could have just like dog-eared the page, but I must've been tired enough to not even remember how to do that. But it was, I think it was towards the beginning. It might've even been in part one where you were, you had a moment, I think where you were at the park and the women were talking about, the other mothers were talking about something and you were trying, I can't remember if you were trying to talk about something deeper or bigger or, you know, real. And you, you kind of went off in the book and this diatribe about like, why aren't you talking about this? And it was like all the things that are so fucking hard about parenting and marriage and get, having your shit together and just adulting. Do you know what part I'm talking about? I kind of hate it when yeah. people ask me this about my book. <laughs> no, 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 I do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's actually in part three. It's like the beginning of part three. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was totally wrong. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's totally fine. Oh, wait, you don't have the entire thing memorized? I know. I don't expect you to either, but it was just, it it struck me so much. And so can you kind of tell, oh, wait, maybe I did dog ear it. Hang on, hang on. I did. I did. You're amazing. It's it's on page 211. Right. Okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. And I quote, I knew the game. I knew we were supposed to talk about not talk about whose partner was the best and the wealthiest, whose preschooler was the smartest and whose baby was the most advanced, but I couldn't play. I tried a few hundred times, but eventually I focused on getting it over with by saying something like, yeah, my son is three and barely talks. Or my daughter refers to her vagina as a wiener shooter. You win. Your kid is smarter. The end. And yes, you have more money and yes, more education and your baby. I know your baby crawled at three months and talked at six months and slept through the night at 12 minutes. What a miracle must be super genetic. Now can we just hang out? I'm bored. Can we talk about the way these kids give and suck life by the minute, day by day, and how sometimes you're sure you've ruined your life through the reproductive process, but five minutes later you're in tears as you pack the newborn clothes into the giveaway box. The way the years mock you with their passing, lull you into the safety and surety and vague comfort of knowing your children will always be small until you realize it will soon be over. Done. Your time is done. Sorry, you should have paid closer attention. Should have held on tighter. Try not to fuck it up with the others, but you already are. You're always already fucking it up. Can we talk about that? And and you go on. And, and it's for a couple of pages. And I'm yeah. like fist pumping the whole time I'm reading it. And I felt that way so much. When my kids were little, we lived in Utah. And this is nothing Ooh. bad against people in Utah because I know you're from there or you lived there for a long no, time. I'm not from there, but I, I'm – yeah, I have a Mormon. Like, and you Mormon. grew up – yeah, Mormon. And we lived there – and I was not Mormon, didn't grow up Mormon, and I felt it very, very hard to fit in. I mm-hmm. felt like I was always one of the others. Yeah. And it was really difficult to be at the park. And I so I so hear that. So thank you for writing that. Yeah, thank you. It it definitely is true. <laughs> I just, you know, it's just the game, right? The like the fronting and the game and the I just, I just can't play it. I'm just not interested. I mean, it's boring. It makes me feel weird and I don't understand it. You know, I, I don't, I just don't want to do the one upping thing and the like, who's kid, you know, as I wrote the, whose yeah. kid is the smartest, who's, whose partner makes the most money. You know, it's just like, okay, you win. Can we just be real with each other? Cause yeah. this is boring. 
That's so fascinating to me as someone who is a self-help person. And like, I'm always like kind of in the background, like wondering what's going on with that person. I make up, and again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But I think that those are like little bids for connection that people are trying to connect with one another. But they're so, I saw a, a really, I know, I know, so cliche. I saw a quote on Instagram the other day that said, pain passes through families until somebody finally is ready to feel it. And I feel like- those of us who can't play that game, like you just described, are the people who are ready to feel it. And we're trying to feel it with other people who are not that person. <laughs> right, right, right. We're like, I'm just not ready. And it's not really their fault. I've kind of like let it go. I'm still frustrated with them so, to some degree. But what do you what do you think about that? That's, I think that's brilliant and very compassionate and probably indicates that you're a way better person than I am. Hey, I work on, <laughs> I did, I was not born this way. <laughs> Andrea, I'm really, really like a friendly person. Like I don't walk around the park going, if we're not going to talk about real shit, fuck off. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. I'm, I just, it's just that sinking feeling when I realize I'm in a dance with someone, right? That feeling of like, we could just sit here and be real with each other. And instead we're doing this, but I also live so, okay. But, but I do feel like, I mean, I can tell when people are kind of just, I mean, I don't know because, because sometimes it seems like people are like it's almost combative. Like it's almost, but you're right. It's, it's for sure rooted in security. Mm-hmm. It's for sure. Yeah. It's for sure rooted in some, but you know, that feeling of like, um, uh, you know, like, like we just met and I have to prove myself to you. Yeah. That's a very difficult feeling for me to, to handle because you mean when somebody else is doing that have, to you? Yeah. Because yeah. I don't have anyone, anything to prove. Right. Like I just can't, um, I don't feel like I, I can participate and it's, it's a sinking feeling when I, when I realize that that's how this conversation is going to go. It's like this sort of, you know, who's pissing match between mothers or whatever. Uh, but I'm still pretty friendly. And then I just try to get out of it. <laughs> I just say, I have to go do something. Just sort of. Yeah. I feel that some people are just, they're highly sensitive, which obviously you are one. I think anyone who's an addict or alcoholic, I think we are, you know, that's part of the reason why we drink and and use. And I know a lot of my listeners are that way too. And it's just one of those like navigations of life that is weird and uncomfortable and wonky. I'm also kind of one of those people who's sort of always taking it a little too far. Like I'm always kind of the one who's like dropping something that's a little too serious for the moment. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, you know what I'm saying? I do that too. Yeah. And then yeah, you get yeah. that weird look and everyone's like, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like I should have kept that one inside <laughs> or crack some joke. That's just like a little too real. Yes. And everyone looks at you like, you know, you're like, you know, there's something seriously off. You know, it's like, yeah, right. I've so, had people say that to me. Like, there goes Andrea taking it a little bit too far. Right. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, you know, can we just back up about 30 seconds and pretend that I didn't say that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've done that too. Okay. Well, you and you and I also had something in common. We were both writing our books at the same time and we both had yeah. deaths in our family. Um, my father died suddenly when I was about, I was about 60 or 70% through writing my oh. manuscript and you. So, so, so what, what happened? You were in the middle of writing your book and what happened? So the book is, of course, about addiction and motherhood. And um, so I had written, you know, so I was sort of weaving these themes together. I wanted to explore those those topics. And um, so I had written about my maternal 
grandmother in the beginning of the book. And then when I was halfway through it, she was killed by a mentally ill cousin, by my mm. cousin, um, uh, after eating dinner one night in their, in my cousin's, in his mother's house. And so my cousin went upstairs and got a knife and came downstairs and stabbed her and killed her. And she died in the kitchen. This was, of course, something that you think happens to other people. Yeah. You read articles <laughs> about on Facebook. Right. You read, you know, and it was all over the news. And that, that of course, I really didn't care that it was all over the news, to be quite honest. It was just bizarre. We were very, very close family. My grandmother and grandfather lived about an hour and a half away. And I grew up, they lived in the same house for 45 years. And so I grew up living there, you know, grow, grew up going there every holiday and um, with all my cousins, including the one who killed her. And this was my mother's mother. And my mother lives down the street from me. It just rocked my family and me to the core. I just, we had already, my grandfather had died six weeks earlier of natural causes of old age. And, um, and so we were sort of still grieving him. And then, and then she died in such a tragic, horrific way that I just, I sort of just lost all ground. I just lost all footing. And I, but at the same time, I couldn't dodge it. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it was a book about motherhood and she was my maternal grandmother. And I couldn't, I couldn't dodge the effect that incident had on me. And so I sort of, I had a choice, you know, I could either let it, I could either pretend it didn't happen and leave it out. Yeah. Hard because I had already written about her (laughs) or I could let it inform my writing and inform my approach to motherhood and what it sort of did to me in terms of learning about or, or how it changed the way I see motherhood and lineage and the connection we have with our mothers and grandmothers. And so I chose the latter as I'm sure you could tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was my second part of the question is how did it change? Did it change anything about the angle of the book or the content or anything? Yeah. You know, it did because it it happened. So I didn't have much time to process it. She died in December and my final manuscript was due, I believe in August the following year. So, you know, seven or eight months later, but what it did was I wasn't, it really drove home for me. You know, I, I mean, as I wrote in the book, I was sitting on the beach. I, I went to the ocean for a few days by myself. To, I have to be alone a lot to deal with things. So I found myself on this beach writing in, in Santa Cruz, writing in my journal. And I was, um, I was just reflecting on my one grandmother who passed away when I was still drinking. And I didn't, I didn't visit her when she died. Um, I, and that, killed me. And then this grandmother taken from us in this way. And I just felt so much anger. And I I kept writing, we remain in the blood of our mother, because I felt like all I had from those women was our blood Mm -hmm. and our sort of primal, deep bodily connection. And that has to be enough. And it, and it's sort of really, and that's, you know, how I, well, I won't, I don't want to, end it. I don't want to spoil anything, but (laughs) you can see through the end of the book that that became sort of all I was really saying, you know, that we can't dodge who we are and we can't necessarily become, we don't necessarily become these perfect versions of ourselves and both as daughters and children and as mothers, what we have is this blood between us. And, um, and, and ultimately that kind of has to be enough. And I think it is enough. And I, you know, I don't have grandiose super, I, I, I didn't have a neatly wrapped package, but, but that was, 
I was never going to write that, but it was particularly robbed from me when that happened. You know, it was particularly uh, clarified that this topic of motherhood was not going to be was not going to be wrapped up and delivered in some beautiful ribbon package because of what happened to my grandmother and the way that I felt of, you know, one of the feelings that I had that was quite powerful was, is this how it fucking ends? Mm -hmm. You know, your whole life to your children, to your family, and then you die. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In such a tragic way too, at the hands of one of your grandchildren. Yeah. At the hands of one of the people who loved you and you love, and and of course he was mentally ill. You know, that we can, that's a whole nother topic, but it's just the reality. And that brings up a lot of questions about living life when you get it and making sure you establish yourself now and, and declare yourself, you know, while you are alive, um, and not disappear. And Mm -hmm. and I'm saying my grandmother did, I'm just, these were the things that brought up for me. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm of course like so incredibly sorry that that happened to you. And of course I'm watching it all play out on, on social media and it just, and then reading about it, it, yeah. I mean, how does one cope with that? And we never can kind of prepare ourselves for things like that. And I think especially, maybe not especially, but uniquely as addicts and alcoholics, we carry this interesting thing, you know, like, will this break me? Which speaking of, okay, so I'm curious about, because the story really is the story, your addiction story. And one of the things I love about it, and you've written about this before, I, I think on, on, on your blog, I hope I'm not confusing you with some other blogger, but about, <laughs> about um, you know, we don't, wasn't that you that wrote like, we don't wake up one day with a needle in our arm and like, yeah, that was me. Yeah. yeah, that was you. Okay. And it's, I want to, I want to link to that particular post in the show notes because it was so poignant and direct and impactful because of course there's still so much shame and stigma in addiction. And I think that we as mothers carry a unique shame and stigma. Absolutely. I've written about this, you know, like good mothers aren't alcoholics. And no. and um and and I what I loved about your story, and it was just it was painful to read too. It's like just when you think Janelle has reached her bottom, nope, there's still more of a journey for still you going. to go on. Still going, yeah still going. And, and, and the reason that I think that your story is so powerful is because you didn't start out. I mean, there was, there wasn't any like clear, like, Oh, this little girl's going to end up, you know, where, where you end up and, and and just watching the progression of it. So my question is, I have a couple of them, but like, how do you, and, and this is what I think probably listeners are interested in is today, you know, you have four children managing all of this stuff and, and now, you know, a new author and the stress of that and everything. How do you stay sober? Oh, wow. <laughs> We're not expecting that. <laughs> Give us all the advice. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the same way I've stayed sober for nine years through, um, and through the, the, you know, the murder that was the first time in sobriety where I, I thought it might take me out just yeah. because I know that for me as an alcoholic to drink is to die. It's to mm-hmm. lose everything of value um, in my life and not material, although that's also true, but my family and things that mean anything to me. And for the first time with her death, I thought to myself that I might, I might not care. I might, it might be worth it for a few moments of oblivion, mm-hmm. but then I immediately remembered that I would just be causing more pain. So like I would add alcohol and then I would be in more pain and I would be making other people suffer more. So 
so, you know, it wasn't, I was able to comprehend that, you know, how, how illogical and ridiculous it is to say, Hey, I want to be out of pain. So I'm going to do something that increases my pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like, isn't that the saying, like, think through the drink, like think your way yeah, through it. And, yeah. And I can do that now right. that I've restored to some sanity after, you know, recovery. I could not do that when I was in my drinking, right? Because my mind would always lie to me. My mind would say, mm-hmm. oh no, it's fine. Take it's the fine. drink. Yeah. It's be Same. Different this yeah. Time. You, know, you really blew it last time. So now you've learned your lesson. This time it's right? going to be different. <laughs> this time you're just going to have two. You're just going to go to the bar and have two drinks. It's going to be fine. And then of course it wasn't. And I do that experiment, you know, 90 million times. But so how do I stay sober? Well, I stay sober in the rooms. I, that was where I got sober after going to rehab multiple times and did a little time in a outpatient mental hospital. Um, and the other way that I stay sober is working with other alcoholics. I have to stay connected with women who are new in recovery, mm-hmm. mostly because it gets me out of my own damn head. It reminds me where I came from. It reminds me what I'm doing here. It keeps me grounded. Um, I get in trouble when I start getting lost in my head. You know, the fear takes over. Mm -hmm. I get complacent. I don't know if you do. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I start getting in this little routine of, you know, complacency. And I I almost forget that I'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and what it means. And the other one that I was going to mention is trying to have some system of, of sort of ruthless honesty with myself in terms of how I'm really doing. Yeah. Because one of the things that happens to me is I get complacent. I stop doing anything for my recovery. And the next thing I know, I'm absolutely miserable. I'm being a jerk to everyone. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm impatient. I'm snapping at my kids. Nobody can stand me. And that leads to a drink for me because I I drink to relieve my internal state of being. I want to feel better, Mm -hmm. quite, quite frankly, I want relief. And so if I get that disturbed and I stay that way, I'm going to eventually drink. So I have to be really honest with myself. And I do that through prayer, through meditation, through writing, journaling, raging on the internet, (laughs) on the internet and just watching myself and looking like, okay, are my relationships working or are they not working? And just being honest, you know? And what part of that is me? Right. And what part of that is me? Like, am I, I mean, how am I relating to the world right now? Mm -hmm. Am I bringing sort of chaos or am I bringing something else? Yeah. And it isn't a martyrdom thing. It isn't a self bashing thing. It's just being honest because it's a, I can shift really quickly into raging asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I start with it's totally same story and I'm a big blamer. Like I know that when I'm like, well, if he would just get his shit together, you know? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. 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 It's all everybody else's fault. It's everyone else's fault. If you would just do what I say, what I say. Mm-hmm. this would be fine. And that's a big red flag for me. Huge. And not Huge. all, and it's not always not somebody else's fault. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. But and, there yeah. are, and that's right too. Then, then if I am, if I am in a relationship that's toxic or there is, then I need to look at what the hell I'm doing there too. Right. right. Like what are you tolerating? Why am I still here? What is, what is, you know, and, and often it's because I'm afraid or I don't want to face what I know to be true, which is also problematic, you know? So I think alcoholics in recovery and addicts in recovery, we have to be really vigilant about the condition of our internal selves, you know? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yeah. And, and I love, I think my biggest takeaway from that answer was that like brutal self-honesty and mm-hmm. yes, 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 yes. I mean, I'm thinking of some people in my mind of <laughs> that have struggled with that in, in my life and, and myself as well. So I have one more question for you before we, we wrap it up and, and everybody needs to go out and get it. So the book is, I'm just happy to be here, a memoir of renegade mothering. What is the main thing you want readers to take away from your story? Mm. Well, let's see. I think one of the things that I struggle with the most as a mother and possibly as just as a human on the planet is the parts of myself that are actual flaws (laughs) Mm -hmm. that didn't go away just because I had children. And there seems to be this story of motherhood that the love of our children will erase these flaws. And that's, you know, particularly with addiction, you know, that's one of the things that I observed when I was reading a lot of addiction memoirs, that there aren't too many written by mothers. And, and the ones that are, you know, a lot of the mothers got sober right when they got pregnant or when they gazed at their newborn. And I think that's wonderful, but it isn't the story of all of us. That was hard for me because um, I, I, when I would read that, I would think about the children of alcoholics who, who couldn't get sober. And I would think that they must have concluded that their mother didn't love them enough. And that really bothered me because I don't think love is always the, the problem or the solution for that matter. And, and, and that extends into other flaws and other defects of character. Um, and I think that that's what I was trying to really say with this book is that, that there's freedom and peace and serenity to be found right there in the messiness of who we are. And that we, we don't have to become these sanitized, perfect, you know, versions of ourselves or pretend that we are in order to have a vibrant, beautiful, loving family. And I, and I know, you know, that's, that's not particularly earth shattering, but one of the things I deeply struggle with when nobody is looking is that, that I'm apparently tasked with raising these children and becoming the voices in their heads and, and this incredible responsibility. And yet I'm only human. Right. And that's all I've got. I, I can't muster perfection. I can't overcome every single flaw that, that is truly destructive. And I don't, I mean, you know, or truly somewhat damaging, you know, Mm -hmm. the the part yells, the part of me that's, that says mean things. I mean, I think that, you know, it's really fun to go online and talk about, you know, the air quotes, like bad way we, you know, the bad things we do of feeding our kid mac and cheese, but everybody knows that's not really like, you know, that's not really a big deal. (laughs) That's not the worst of it. (laughs) There are some mothers who really think that's a big deal, but we don't, we don't care about them. But you know, the stuff, the stuff that bothers you when nobody is looking, you know, when you're lying there at bed at 3am and you're like, oh fuck, I shouldn't have done that today. Like, I can't believe I did that to my kid. You know, I can't believe I screwed up that way. And that's, that's the part of the mother and the person I wanted to speak to sort of giving that space, some voice and some, and to sort of assert that, Hey, first of all, you know, we're all there. And also there's some peace and love to be found right there in that messiness. Mm-hmm. I hope, I don't know if I accomplished that, but I sure hope I did. I think you did. I, I, I think that it was, it was both so eloquently a story of redemption because at the end of the day, we all love a good redemption story, right? Absolutely. As well as, Hey, it's, it's not necessarily wrapped up with a bow, but like maybe like a burlap knot, you know, like. <laughs> totally, totally. Yep. 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 <laughs> yes. 
But it's I, it's just so real and authentic, and I loved every page. Uh, it did not take me long to read it at all, and I really invite everyone listening to go out and read it. I'm just happy to be here, a memoir of renegade mothering. Thank you, Janelle, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was a lovely talk. And everyone, as always, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I'm always so grateful that you take the time to come on over and have a listen. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.